Today we're going to be wrapping up our series on climate change. The first week we talked about our personal climate and how our climate determines our forecast or our emotional state and how it affects our relationship with God and others. The second week we discussed about how at times we can be blown like the wind or by the wind by the effects of our insecurities and how labels other than those given to us by our relationship to Christ can be very damaging. The third week, Chad talked about how we develop an idealized vision of what we think our life should look like, and sometimes that vision doesn't exactly fit or match what God has in mind for us. We talked about the way our expectations can negatively affect our relationships if we allow them to. And last week, we talked about the storm clouds, that conflict will arise in our relationships. We learned that conflict in relationships is inevitable. And through identifying the problem, facing it, and with some patience, those storm clouds can calm down when we trust the Lord and face them head on, which brings us to this week. And of course, after the storm comes what? Clear skies, that's right. Today we're going to be talking about clear skies, but rather, actually we're going to be talking about joy. Today we're going to be talking about clear skies and joy. Now, first I want to see if I can define joy for us. And then I want to take a look at what the Bible says about joy. And lastly, I hope to help all of us see what this has to do with our relationships. Now, I thought it rather ironic that I was asked to speak on this subject since I don't exactly count myself as one who is overtly joyful. But I'm always up for a challenge. And I figured since talking about and researching something like this might help me, that would be good. Unfortunately, it might not be great for y'all, but it was good for me anyway. So we'll see if we can get through it. Now, I would like to say, first off, that this study is a work in progress. And what I mean by that is, is the more I dug into the, re- the rich, creamy center of the subject of joy, the more complex the conversation gets. They say that ignorance is bliss, and sometimes when it comes to theology, the deeper you get, the more questions you have. But since I'm among my fellow theologians today, I'm confident that we can get through this together. And yes, I meant what I said Every person in this room right now is a theologian. We are all theologians. What is a theologian, you might ask? I'm glad you asked. In the book, Who Needs Theology? Stanley Grenz and Roger Olson offer this definition of theology. Christian theology is reflecting on and articulating the God-centered life and the beliefs that Christians share as followers of Christ. And it is done in order that God may be glorified and all Christians are induced. So... If that describes you, and I hope it does, then we are all theologians here today. As I was preparing to speak on joy, I did what I usually do, and I I got a bunch of books out, and I started to read and study this subject. I do my best when I teach to try to come to a personal understanding or at least a personal belief about what I'm teaching on, so then at least I'm confident about what I'm saying because I believe it. It may not match with what you believe or what you've been taught, but it usually at least puts me in a position where I'm confident that I can teach about it. But can I tell you a few interesting observations about books on joy? First of all, they're almost always geared toward women. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you just go on Amazon and type in joy, you're certain to be met with several covers of books that have circles of laughing women. Or a nicely laid out table with tea and an open book on it with flowers over a beautiful vista as they look over. I don't understand why almost all the books that I saw on Joy almost always were for women. 
Is it because guys aren't interested in joy or maybe we don't want to talk about the fact that we don't have joy? I mean, could you imagine a book entitled The Joy of Masculinity? I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. Or, or what about, you know, how to be a joy-filled man? I mean, can you imagine what that book would look like? And, and seriously, if you guys have time, author that book. I mean, you could be a New York Times bestseller. There aren't many like that. I am a man. And I don't think I would even read one of those books because I don't know what would be in it. So usually these books, interestingly enough, are geared toward women. Secondly, most of the books that come up with the subject of joy are actually about achieving happiness. People don't seem too concerned about joy. They want to be happy. But the question that we have to ask is, is there a difference? But we'll get to that. Lastly, when I was looking for books on joy, inevitably you will find that there are more books on suffering, dealing with loss, and dealing with pain than books on actual joy. It's interesting because when things are good, we don't think much about joy, right? We just know that we have it. Things are good. I don't need to read a book on what joy is when things are good. I need it when things are bad, when life is hard, when I'm suffering, when there's pain. That's usually when we look for how to find joy. And so there usually aren't many books dealing with the topic of joy. But strangely enough, the two always seem to coincide. They seem to come together, joy and suffering, which is interesting, and we also will get to that. I thought as I prepared for this message, I really wanted to try to find a good working definition for joy. And so I, I did what you always do. You go to the Internet. And I typed in, what is joy, in my Google search engine. And, I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of results. And I was so happy with what I found uh, because I found this video on joy. So, so once I found that video, I thought, well, we're, work's done. We're done here. Like, let's go to lunch. So after getting caught up about three to four hours of watching funny cat and dog videos, <laughs> when you type in joy, inevitably you end up watching nothing but funny cat and dog videos. Anyway, I thought, you know what? There's a better way to do this. Let's start at the source. Let's go to the Bible. So I pulled out my Bible and my concordance to see what words are being used and what those words actually mean. Now, I did some reading, and the deeper I dug, the more I realized that we have a little bit of a problem. I, like many of you, have been taught and thought that there was a difference between the meaning of the words joy and happiness. And we are often told that happiness is an emotion that is affected by our circumstances, whereas joy is a state of being and not an emotion. But can I tell you, scripturally speaking, there doesn't seem to be much of a difference. The words are used interchangeably. Now, I do want to mention that contrary to what you might have been told, the word happy does, in fact, come and appear in the Bible. It may depend on the translation that you're using. For some reason, the King James Bible really likes to use the word happy, but the word happy really is in the Bible, whereas most translations use one of the different meanings for the word. So the Hebrew word for joy is the word chesir, which means good fortune, blessedness, happiness, and a heightened state of happiness and joy. This word is used often in the Psalms and Proverbs. As you think about the Psalms of David, as he was celebrating with joy and singing for joy and clashes of symbol and joy, it's used very often in the Psalms. The Greek word for the same is markarios, which means blessed, happy, or happier. 
So we know that happy is in there, but we're talking about joy. So where's that word used in the Bible? Well, the answer, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. The word joy and its different iterations, joy, joyful, joyous, joyfully, is found in 165 different verses in the Bible. In the Hebrew, it's usually, and I say usually because there are several words that represent this word. It's the word simcha, and in Greek, it's the word kara. So I looked all of those up, and I realized that a majority of them are, in fact, referring to emotional experiences. There was no indication that there was a difference between an emotional state of being or in an actual state of being. And I wanted to show you the list. This is the list that we have from Strong's Concordance of all the uses of the word joy. And you can see... So many of them are referring to emotional experiences. It's not something that's dictated by our, our situation. Um, but if you read them, so they sang praises of joy. There was great joy. Many shouted aloud for joy, a sound of joy. If you could scroll for me. Yep, all springs of joy, uh, cry out for joy, uh, gladness and joy, etc., etc. Let's keep going. Go, go, go. These are all of them. There's many. There's joyful. So shout, shout joyfully. Shout joyfully. Uh, that one, shout, you shout a lot, I guess, when you're joyful. So for I joyfully agree with the law of God. So, and then we have joyously. So it's used so many times in scriptures, but there's no indication where there's a, there's a distinction between an emotional experience and a state of being. Well, then, of course, I thought this, this can't be right. There has to be a difference. But from the original language and the use of the words, it looks, at least scripturally, like they're the same thing. So then I thought, I need to talk to Chad because I don't want to preach on this because it's going to be really hard. And Chad said, no, you're going to preach on it. And I said, okay. So then I kept digging. And of course, as I do, when I am looking for answers pertaining to theology, I go to the Bible first, always. But if I need help to better understand or if I need clear understanding, I always go to C.S. Lewis. Now, I know that I mention him often. And please let me remind you that not only did he write his famous Chronicles of Narnia, but he was also one of the greatest theological minds of all time. And his theological works have helped reform theological thinking forever. And it just so happens that Lewis has several works on the topic of joy, one of which is called Surprised by Joy, which is his autobiography and the story of his, his spiritual life and conversion. If you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you know that eventually he would marry a woman whose name was Joy. She actually is not even in this book, which is interesting. People usually think Surprised by Joy has to do with her. She's not even in it because he ends it before she even enters the scene. So it's not about her, but it's just a kind of an interesting coincidence because they were married for three years and then she died of cancer. I think C.S. Lewis understood something about joy. Anyway, he also wrote a great book called The Pilgrim's Regress, which is patterned after John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's C.S. Lewis's take on the conversion experience. So this is what I found from Lewis, and here's where I really need to work together to see if we can get through this. Are you guys ready for this? Let's, okay, here we go. For Lewis, joy signified an intense, overwhelming desire for an indefinable, numinous, or spiritual something that was just beyond his grasp. Joy, that is, is a feeling, but a feeling that pointed beyond itself. If one tried to hold on to that feeling and enjoy it as an end in itself, it would quickly vanish. Likewise, if one tried greedily to reproduce the feeling, it would never come. 
Joy comes only when the mind forgets itself and seeks something else. Moments or flashes of joy, as Lewis says, are a signpost pointing to something greater, but not an end in themselves. One of C.S. Lewis's greatest apologetic arguments is known as the argument by desire. And just to remind you, apologetics is a logical defense for the Christian faith. So when we're talking about apologetics, we're talking about defending the Christian faith. There are classes, there are books. If you have any questions, uh, defending it is simply as somebody questioning the, the uh, errancy or the, the truthfulness of the Bible. Defending it in the sense that you're defending yourself as we continue to... Persecution increases for believers. Persecution increases for Christians. When we defend our faith with a logical argument, that is apologetics. And C.S. Lewis offers this one. It's called the argument by desire. The fact that we experience thirst is proof that we are creatures for whom drinking water is natural. Right? We experience thirst. Therefore, thirst is a natural occurrence. In the same way, the fact that we desire an object that our natural world cannot supply suggests the existence of another supernatural world. Lewis adds that the desire does not guarantee that we will achieve that other world. So, for example, if we're stranded in the desert, we're thirsty, we could still die of thirst if we don't get that thing. But it does suggest that we are creatures who are capable of achieving it and who were, in some sense, made to achieve it. We were made for a higher supernatural world. Lewis continues this idea in the conclusion of his book, Reflections on the Psalms. Lewis notes how odd it is that we are continually surprised by the passage of time. We might see someone who we have not seen in a long time and think, my, how they've grown, or maybe how they've grown old. Time is the very essence of our lives. We know nothing but time, but we are continually surprised by the passage of time. Lewis says that would be as strange as a fish who is constantly surprised by the wetness of water. And he goes on to say that that would be strange indeed unless, of course, that fish was destined someday to be a land animal. Do you get it? We are destined for eternity. That is our true home. Everything that we experience here is only a shadow of what we will see in heaven. Time always seems strange to us. The passage of time is always strange because it's not natural for our souls. We're created for an eternal place that lasts all time, no time. So the fact that time exists is something that points to the fact that we are not destined for this world. There is nothing on this earth that can fully fulfill our God-given desires, but unfortunately that does not stop us from trying. We try everything we can to fill those desires that God has put in us, a desire for him, but we try to fill it by other means. In more modern terms, it has been said that there's a God-shaped hole in our hearts that we try to fill with all manner of things, but none will fill it because only Christ alone can fill that void. Remember, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put, he's written eternity on our hearts. 
That is what we long for. We long for eternity. We yearn to be with him and to be made whole and complete once again. But why does this matter? It matters because as we seek to find joy, it is only through a holy pursuit of godly things that we can even begin to experience what joy is and what it will be like when we are made complete in heaven. Joy comes from the constant pursuit of God. The joy that we experience here on earth are only shadows of true joy. They are signposts that point to heaven and what we will experience when we arrive there. I think we're on to something now. It was at that point that I read this and I thought, okay, I'm starting to get it. Our souls are seeking for something that can't be found because this is not our home. We might get glimpses or flashes of joy, but it will never measure up to the joy that we know to expect eternally. Joy is elusive. It's very difficult to define. In some ways, I think that true biblical joy is something that can't be described at all, but rather only truly experienced. So I looked back at many of the instances of where joy is is discussed in Scripture. And I just want to let you know that I got a lot of help from April Fromm on this. Um, April was really helpful. We texted back and forth all week. I I was really struggling. Somebody said after the first service, that one was probably really hard for you. And I said, well, it was. This sermon was difficult to put together because I'm a very black and white person. I mean, I can preach on end times, I can preach on Christ, I can preach on baptism, I can preach on theology. What do you, we can talk about that because there are the definitive answers for those things. Joy, it's a lot harder. It's kind of existential. It's an experiential thing, and that's not really my realm. We could do black and white. That's easy. But this one was really hard. April really had some great thoughts, and, and I just wanted to make sure to acknowledge her because she helped me a lot with this. One of the observations that she shared with me first was that pain is temporary, but joy always comes. Psalm 31 through 5 says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. Sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but shouts of joy come in the morning. What a glorious promise. Weeping will come, but joy comes in the morning. Of course, the question we ask is, when's the morning? Well, That's hard to say. Sometimes we experience that morning here on earth. When we seek God, we earnestly pray and fast and petition to God. He will answer our prayers and things will go the way that we hope they go. But sometimes the morning doesn't come until we arrive in heaven. And that's the hard part. The hard part is is sometimes suffering lasts a lifetime. But the morning will come. The second observation is this. Christian joy may be the outcome of suffering and sorrow. This seems very paradoxical. And this is one that I wish we had a little more time to spend on because I feel like this is usually where we are. It's usually here that we struggle. It's usually at this point where things are very difficult that we're struggling to find what is joy, how do I find it, because I don't like where I'm at right now because it's not very comfortable. Now, 
please, if I could, be clear about something. I think that living in America, in a lot of ways, affects the way we view suffering and sorrow. I would ask if you could finish this statement for me. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's right, happiness. We are taught from a very young age to think that happiness is our right. We think happiness is owed to us and that happiness should be our primary goal. I mean, how often do we look at all the amazing things that our friends and family are doing on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and think to ourselves, why was I made to suffer like I do? Everybody's lives are so much better than mine. Look at the vacations they take. Look at the new car they got. Their family is beautiful. Look at those photos. I can't even get my family to sit down for a photo. Why was I made to suffer? And of course, we think that as we're sitting at a nice restaurant, drinking fresh, clean water, and checking our status on our iPhones. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but I think that in America, we've become spoiled. I think I might go as far as to say that I think we've become spoiled rotten. You know, I remember the first time I got to go on an international mission trip. And it was quite an experience for me. I had never traveled internationally before. And so I chose for my first international experience to go to the poorest country in this hemisphere. I went to Haiti. And I went there to help with a Christmas program that the school Sunlight Academy was putting on for the community. It's a big Christmas pageant, and I was running sound for them, and it was a great experience. But I remember one moment in particular where all the kids were in class, and the kids all had boxes on their desks. And these boxes were sent from their sponsor parents here in America, right? So I know many of you sponsor kids. And all these boxes were sent from people in America and they were ready to open their presents. And, of course, you can't imagine the excitement of the kids as they tear into these presents. There were toys and clothes, all kinds of things. You know what they were really excited about? School supplies. They were excited about school supplies because they just wanted to be able to do their homework at home. That wasn't the really hard one. The really hard one was the one little girl who refused to open her box. Because she wanted to take it home to share it with her little brother and sister because they had never gotten to open a present before. There are people in this world, guys, that are really suffering. Clean water, food, starvation. There is real suffering going on in this world. And I think that we need to try to maintain a little bit of perspective when we're talking about suffering and pain. Now, I know what you're thinking yeah, but we still have loss. Death, disease, hurricanes, tornadoes, cancer, the list goes on. I know, I know. I've been there. I've experienced it. You know, I saw this meme this week, and I wanted to show it to you. This reminded me of some, how some people might view life. Right? Me. You know what? I'm actually happy right now. Life. Well, hold on one second. You know, I've been conditioned in my life, unfortunately, to expect the other shoe to drop. In fact, April at one point this week texted me and said, Adam, you have to change the way you view this. You're always looking for the bad thing to happen. That's because for me, it has seemed the bad thing always happens. I've become paranoid. I'm always looking over my shoulder. Something good happens, and immediately I'm like thinking, uh-oh. Something good happened. 
that means something bad is right around the corner. I'm trying to reform my thinking on that because that is not the way God operates, guys. It's just not the way he works. But don't you think that Paul understood human suffering? Paul, of all people, he knew all too well as he continued to share the gospel with everybody he came into contact with. Paul says in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And hope that the creation itself would be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And this is the key. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together even until now. All of creation groans, just waiting for Christ to return. We know we're not created for the sufferings of this world, but rather for our eternal home. But getting there can be very hard. Edward T. Welsh says, Joy is not the opposite of suffering. If it were, a person practiced in joy could crowd out pain because one couldn't exist without the other. Instead, joy can actually be a companion to suffering. Have you ever thought about it that way? Have you ever thought about your suffering and longed for it because you knew that from that comes joy? Bryn Brown, a psychologist and researcher, has found that you cannot selectively numb emotions. You cannot say, here's the bad stuff, here's vulnerability, here's grief, here's shame, here's fear, here's disappointment. I don't want to feel these. Mentally, psychologically, you literally cannot numb those feelings and emotions unless you block out all the other ones too. You can't selectively numb emotions. So when you numb the hard emotions, you also numb joy, you numb gratitude, you numb happiness, and then we become miserable. So what do we do? When life gets hard and we experience loss, what do we do? Well, my brother is in the Army, and he shared something with me recently, and some of you who are in the military or who have been in the military probably have heard this before. And I think that Paul probably really would have liked it because I think it matches his philosophy of life. It goes like this. Embrace the suck. Embrace it. Because it's going to come. Well, while life is hard and while we suffer, God is taking something that would be tragic, that would be terrible, that would be miserable, and he's turning it into something beautiful. He turns it into glory. When we are at our worst, God is always at his best. Through those challenges and through that suffering, he's making us into something beautiful, into something holy. Embrace it. And we need to remember that through pain, spiritual maturity comes. As it says in James 1, 1 to 3, James says, A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. And then he gets right into it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. He gets right to the point. 
Consider it joy when you face these trials because that's when true discipleship, when true spiritual maturity takes place. Now, if you could, as fellow theologians, I would like to give you a homework assignment if you have time this week. Because I wanted to do more research on this, but I ran out of time. I wonder how many times when Paul is talking about suffering in the Bible, he's talking about the human condition versus suffering for the gospel. Every scripture that I could think of where Paul talks about suffering was about suffering for Christ. I'm not sure how concerned Paul was about the pain of the human condition. So as fellow theologians, I challenge you this week, see what you can find. How many times when Paul talks about suffering, is he talking about our fallen human condition versus the suffering that comes from continuing to evangelize and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'd be curious what you find out. The third observation is this. Joy is to be shared. And this is where the relational piece comes in. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Guys, we are to share joy that we have that comes through Christ to others. We shouldn't keep it to ourselves. We shouldn't keep it hidden. Joy in Christ thrives on being shared. This is the essence of Christian joy. It overflows or it dies. The last observation is this. Paul uses joy to talk about our final reward, our glorification, heaven. This is where all our hope and joy should lead us to. In other words, hope and joy are found in the promises that we have of eternity spent with Christ in heaven. Revelation says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son or child. That is what we have hope in, and that is where true joy comes from. It comes from the promises of God. Now, as we wrap up this series, I just want to encourage you, as we think about relationships and how our climate, our temperature, our behavior can affect those relationships, in all of our relationships and in our lives, we must rely on the joy that comes from pleasing the Lord and expect that we will continually be filled with his strength even as we struggle in our maturing process. Joy will come. And remember, as I always say, before God created, he what? Right, he related. 
Before God even laid the foundations of the earth, he was in a relationship with the Trinity. How important do you think relationships are to God? Guys, our joy is to be shared with one another. There are people who are suffering. There are people who are struggling. And don't you know that sharing the way that God has filled you with joy with them can bring life to their soul? Seeing God's promise being fulfilled in fact can bring life to those who are struggling. Share that joy with others. Before God created, he related. If we had time, we'd go through all the New Testament one another verses. You guys have probably heard all these. Love one another. Be with one another. Provide for one another. Share with one another. Share one another's burdens, etc. It goes on and on. The emphasis on relationships was key to finding a life of joy in Christ. Do not keep it to yourself. Joy is to be shared. Are joy and happiness the same thing? I really don't know. I'd have to do way more research and study to try to figure this thing out than I had to prepare for for this week. There's camps on both sides of the conversation. Some say it is the same. Some say it's different. But what are we really talking about? Blessing, joy, happiness. I mean, maybe there's really no way to define what joy in Christ really looks like. Maybe it's only something that we can understand when we experience it. And even then, we may not be able to describe it. But I assure you, you will know it when it comes. But let me tell you what I do know. Life is beautiful and tragic. It's full of joy and it's full of sorrow. I know that every good gift comes from God. So when those times of sorrow come, we have to turn to Him. And when times are good, when we are experiencing joy, we should delight in it as a sign that greater things await us. But don't stop there thinking it's an end in itself. It's only a shadow of something that we will experience for all time. It's pointing to something greater. Call it what you want. Happiness, joy, Enjoy the clear skies when they come. But as you're experiencing that joy, be sure to bring an umbrella because the storms are coming. Cover yourself with the promises of God. Find joy in the midst of your suffering. Find joy in the fact that God delights in you because though the storms will come, the sun will shine again. The morning will come. And when we stand before the sun, God's one and only son, we know, we are promised that the skies will be clear for all eternity. Would you pray with me?